Welcome to Robotech The McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels written by Brian Daly and James Lucino, with your host, JT. of Robotech, the McKinney Project, a celebration of the Robotech novels as written by New York Times bestselling authors Brian Daly and James Lucino, collectively known in the Robotech universe under the pseudonym of Jack McKinney. Our executive producer is McJ. Our official website is www.robotechnovels.com, where you'll find the show notes for each and every episode of the podcast. Our official email address is robotechnovels at gmail.com. We're on iTunes. We're on Facebook. Go to www.robotechnovels.com for all the linkage information. I am your host, JT. To our brand new listeners, welcome aboard. To our returning listeners, welcome back. To all of you, I say you could not have come at a better time because, of course, as I said, this is a very special edition of Robotech, the McKinney Project, which I like to call the Compilation number one. And I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Now, it's been a while since our last episode, episode number three, which was November 3rd, 2013 to be exact, but it is January 2014, a brand new year. McJay and I are working our collective asses off to bring you brand new episodes of this podcast. And those new episodes are going to be coming very, very soon. That means new segments, new topics, new formats, and yes, brand new readings, brand new narrative of the Robotech novels as written by the two guys that the two guys that created a Robotech legacy, Brian Daly and James Lucino. Now, if you're a brand new listener and you're not quite following what I'm talking about, my best suggestion is to go to episode zero. It goes into a full description of what this podcast is about. The the 10-second version is that this is a podcast about the Robotech novels, the guys that wrote them, topics related to the Robotech novels, and we actually do readings and narrations from the Robotech novels themselves. It's not a full audiobook reading, it's just excerpts mixed in along with my uh, personal narration. And uh, we've had fun in the four episodes that we've done, episode zero, episode one, episode two, and episode three. And for this, the compilation number one, what McJay and I have done is that we've taken the readings and narrations from episodes one, two, and three, and we've put them all together into one mega episode, which is the one you're listening to right now. It is over 90 minutes of content. It is over 90 minutes of nothing but Robotech novels uninterrupted. Other than my introduction here, there will be no further segments. There will be no further... Uh, like we do the commercial the commercial breaks with the music there will be none of that it will after this it'll be just straight robotech novels for the next 90 minutes or so it's a lot i know but it's a bet i think we thought about it and i thought this was the best way to get regular listeners to refamiliarize themselves with what we've done so far and a great way for brand new listeners to get caught up on what we've done so far in just 
one episode. And McJay and I are looking very forward to 2014. Our goal is to make 2014 the year of the Robotech novels, the year of Jack McKinney. We're excited for what's ahead. There's so many things to talk about besides the readings and narrations, just so many other topics to talk about that are directly and indirectly related to the Robotech novels. And of course, talking about the guys themselves, Brian and Jim, because uh, uh, without them, there would be, we wouldn't have this uh, Robotech legacy. And as I've always said from the very beginning, the Jack McKinney legacy was, is, and always will be Robotech's legacy. There is no doubt about that. And I'm very proud and very privileged to be able to bring you this podcast. But uh, I didn't want to go into any long introductions. I will say this. Uh, keep up to date on when the new episodes will be coming out by going to www.robotechnovels.com or going to our Facebook page. We're 200 strong. And while well, that not may be a lot in terms of Facebook likes. For me, that is definitely a milestone because you know, those 200 people were, were having fun with the Robotech novels. And for the fun that's going to be ahead, it's definitely going to be, it's going to be a ride. It's going to be a fun ride. And the whole point of it is just to have fun. It's just to have fun, and what better way to have fun than with the Robotech novel? So that's going to do it for me, guys and girls. Like I said, I didn't want to do a long introduction. So without further ado, it's Robotech Novels time, baby! Enjoy! Prologue. I've brought death and suffering in such magnitude, Sore thought. It's only right that I spent the balance of my life bringing life. He looked out from the observation bay of his temporary groundside headquarters upon a planetary surface that had been lifeless a mere four days before. He saw before him a plain teeming with thriving vegetation. Already the flowers of life were sprouting, reaching their eager, knob-tipped shoots into the sunshine. Zor, Supreme intellect of his race and lord of the protoculture nodded approvingly. At times, the memories of his own past deeds, much less those of his species, seemed enough to drive him mad. But when he looked down on a scene like this, he could forget about the past and be proud of his handiwork. And above him, blocking out the light of the nearby primary, his gargantuan starship and superdimensional fortress was escaping, as he had directed. The satisfaction he felt from that and from seeing the germinated flowers made it much easier to accept the fact that he was about to die. He was tall and slender, with a lean, ageless face and a thick shock of bright starlight hair. The clothes he wore were graceful, regal, cut tight to his form, covered by a short cloak that he now threw back over one shoulder. Zor could hear the alarm signals ring behind him, and the booming voice of his entrati announced, Warning! Warning! Infantroop carriers are preparing to land! All warriors to their battle pods! Zor gazed away from the beauty of the exterior scene, back to the harsh reality of the base, as Tarings and Trotty dashed about, preparing for battle. Even though the appearance of the Invid had taken them by surprise, even though they were badly outnumbered and at a disadvantage since the enemy held the high ground, there was a certain eagerness to the Zendrati. War was their life and their reason for being. In that, they had met their match and more in the Invid. Zor found bitter irony in his own poor judgment and the cruelty of the Robotech Masters, 
his masters, had turned a race of peaceful creatures, once content with their single planet and their introspective existence, into the most ferocious species in the known universe. While subordinates strapped armor and weapons on his great body, Dolza, supreme commander of the Zentradi, glared down at Zor. His colossal head, with its shaven, heavy-browed skull, gave him the aspect of a stone icon. We should have departed before the flowers germinated! I warned you! Dolza raised a metal-plated fist big enough to squash Zor. Unafraid, Zor looked up at him, though his faithful aide Vard was holding a hand weapon uneasily. Around them the base shook as armored Zentradi and their massive fighting pods raced to battle stations. What of the superdimensional fortress? Dolza demanded. What have you done with it? I have sent it away, Zord answered calmly, to a place far removed from this evil, senseless war. It is already nearing the edge of space, too fast and too powerful for the Invid to stop. That much, Dolza knew, was true. The dimensional fortress, Zor's crowning technological achievement, was the mightiest machine in existence. Nearly a mile long, it incorporated virtually everything Zor had discovered about the fantastic forces and powers springing from the flowers of life. Sent it where? Dolza demanded. Zor was silent. If I weren't sworn by my warrior oath to protect you, Dolza's immense fist hovered close, I would kill you! A few pods from the ready reaction force were already on the scene, looming metal battle vehicles big enough to hold one or two Zentradi. Their form suggested that of a headless ostrich, with long, broad breastplates mounting batteries of primary and secondary cannon. I don't expect you to understand, Zor said in carefully measured tones, as explosions and shockwaves shook the base. They could hear the Zentradi communication net crackling with reports of the Invid landing. You were created to fight the Invid. That is what you must do, Zor told the giant as the headquarters outer wall heaved and began to crumble. Go! Fulfill your Zentradi imperative! As Zor spun and ducked for cover, Vard shielded him with his own body. Dolza turned to give battle as the wall shuddered and cracked wide. Through the showering rubble leapt Invid shock troopers, the enemy's heaviest class of mecha advanced war machines. Forged from a super-strong alloy, bulking as walking battleships, the mecha resembled a maniac's vision of biped insect soldiers. They were every bit as massive as the Zentradi pods, and even more heavily armored. Concentrated fire from the few pods already on the scene, blue lances of blindingly bright energy, penetrated the armor of the first shock trooper to appear. Even as the Invid returned fire with streams of annihilation discs, the seams and joints of its armor expanded under the overwhelming pressure from the eruptions inside. It exploded into bits of wreckage and white-hot shrapnel that bounced noisily off the pod's armor. But a trio of shock troopers had crowded in behind the first, and a dozen more massed behind them. Annihilation discs and red plasma volleys quartered the air, destroying the headquarters command center and equipment setting fires and blasting pods to glowing scraps or driving them back. Armored Zentradi warriors, lacking the time to reach their pods, rushed in to fight a desperate holding action, spraying the invids with handheld weapons, dodging and ducking, advancing fearlessly and suffering heavy casualties. A swift warrior ran in under an invid shock trooper, holding his weapon against a vulnerable joint in its armor and then triggering the entire charge all at once, point blank. The explosion blew the Invid's leg off, toppling it, but the Zentradi was obliterated by the detonation. Elsewhere, an Invid mecha seized the damaged pod that could no longer fire, ripped the pod apart with its super-hard metal claws, then dismembered the wounded Zentradi within. 
Scouts, smaller infant machines, rushed in behind the shock troopers to scour the base. It took only moments for one to find Zor. The Invid had been searching for him for a long time and were eager for revenge. As the scout lumbered toward them, Vard tried to save his lord by absorbing the first blast himself, firing his little hand weapon uselessly at the Invid monster. He partially succeeded, but only at the cost of his own life, immolated in an instant by a disc. The force of the blast drove Zor back and scorched him. The rest of the discs in the salvo were ignited by the explosion, but having been flung aside, Zor was spared most of their fury. Still, he suffered terrible injuries. Skin burned from his body until bone was exposed, lungs seared by fire, bones broken from the concussion and the fall, tremendous internal hemorrhaging. He knew he would die. Before the Invid scout could finish the job, Doza was there, firing at it with his disruptor rifle, ordering the remaining pods to concentrate their fire on it. Zor is down! Save Zor! He thundered. Switching to his helmet communicator, he tried to raise his most trusted subordinate. Breetai! Breetai! Where are you? The scout was blown to fury bits in the withering fusillade, but its call had gone out. The other scouts and the shock troopers were homing in on their arch enemy. Dolza, with the remaining warriors and pods, formed a desperate defensive ring, unflinchingly ready to die according to their code. Suddenly, there was a massive volley from the right, then an even more intense one from the left. To Dolza's astonishment, they were directed at the Invid. Britai had arrived at the head of reinforcements. Some of them were wearing only body armor like himself, but most were in tactical or heavily armored officers' battle pods. The Invid line began to collapse before a storm of masked fire. More pods were arriving all the time. Dolza couldn't understand how. An invasion force was descending by the thousands from a moon-sized Invid hive ship, its troopers as uncountable as insects. Surely the base must be covered by a living, swarming lair of the enemy. But the enemy was being driven back, and Britai was leading a countercharge on foot, just as a small wedge of shock troopers threatened to make good on a suicide rush at Dolza and Zor. A disc struck a pod near Britai even as he was firing left and right with his rifle. Blast and shrapnel hit his head and the right side of his face. Britai dropped, skull aflame, but the Zentradi countercharge went on, somehow, to drive the Invid back to the breach in the wall. Finally, Dolza wearily lowered his glowing rifle muzzle. Pursuit of the retreating Invid could be left to the field commanders. He began to take reports from the newcomers, thus learning the details of the unexpected Zentradi victory. Most of the Invid had been diverted in an attempt to stop or board the Dimensional Fortress and had been wiped out. Even now, word of the attack was going back to the Robotech Masters. A punitive raid would have to be mounted. Britai was being attended to by the healers and would live, though he would be scarred for life. But all of that was of little moment to Dolza. He looked down on the smoking, broken body of Zor. Healers crowded around the fallen genius with their apparatus and medicines, but Dolza had seen enough combat casualties to know that Zor was beyond help. Zor knew it as well as Dolza. Drifting in a near delirium, feeling surprisingly little pain, he heard exchanges about the Dimensional Fortress. 
He smiled to himself, though it hurt his scorched face, thankful that the starship had escaped. Once more, he had the vision that had made him decide to dispatch the ship. As the master of the limitless power of protoculture, with his matchless intellect, he had access to hidden worlds of perception and invisible paths of knowledge. He saw again an infinitely beautiful blue-white world floating in space, one blessed with the treasure that was life. He sensed that it was, or would be, the crux of transcendent events, the crossroads and deciding place of a conflict that raged across galaxies. A column of pure mind energy rose from the planet, a pillar of dazzling force, a hundred miles in diameter, crackling and swaying, swirling like a whirlwind, throwing out shimmering sheets of brilliance, climbing higher and higher into space all in a matter of moments. As he had before, Zor felt humbled by the mind cyclone's force. Then its pinnacle unexpectedly gave shape to a great bird, a phoenix of mental essence. The firebird of transfiguration spread wings wider than the planet, soaring away to another plane of existence, with a cry so magnificent and sad that Zor forgot his impending death. He wept for the dreadful splendor of what was to come, two tears flowing down his burnt cheeks. But he was buoyed by a renewed conviction that the dimensional fortress must go to that blue-white planet. The sounds of the last skirmishes came from the distance as Zentradi rooted out and executed the last of the invid troops. Dolza stood looking down at Zor's blackened body as its life slipped away despite all the healers could do. Dolza suspected that Zor did not wish, would not permit himself, to be saved. Whatever Zor's plan, there was no changing it now. The ship itself, along with a handful of Zentradi loyal to Zor alone, had jumped beyond the Robotech Master's reach, at least for the time being. It was of little comfort to Dolza that final transmissions from the Dimensional Fortress, in the moments before transition through a spacefold, indicated that the traitors aboard had been badly wounded during the battle to get past the Invid's surprise attack. Zor, if you die, the mission is over, and I must return in defeat and humiliation, Dolza said. I have thwarted the Robotech Master's plan to control the universe. Zor had to pause to cough and regain his breath with a rattle in it that spoke of dying. But a greater, finer mission is only beginning, Dolza. Zor coughed again and was still, eyes closed forever. Dolza stood before a screen that was large even for his entrati. Before him was the image of a Robotech Master. Dolza spoke obsequiously. And so we have no idea where the Dimensional Fortress is, at least for the moment. The Master's axe-keen face, with its hawkish nose, flaring brows, and swirling storm-whipped hair, showed utter fury. Dolza wasn't surprised. Zor, who'd given the Masters the key to their power, and the mighty Dimensional Fortress, gone at a stroke. Dolza wondered if the Invid realized just how much damage they'd inflicted in a raid that would otherwise have been an insignificant skirmish. The Robotech Master's voice was eerily lifeless, like a single sideband transmission. The Dimensional Fortress must be recovered at all costs. Organize a search immediately. We shall commit the closest Entrati fleet to the mission at once, and all others will join in the effort if necessary. Those about to the image. And Zor, my lord, shall I have his remains interred in his beloved garden? No. Freeze them, and bring them back to us personally. Guard them well, 
we may yet extract information from his cellular materials. With that, the Master's image disappeared from the screen. Hail, Dolza! Breitai reporting is ordered! Dolza looked him over. A day or two of Zentradi healing had the senior commander looking fit for duty. Though he was once again the fierce gladiator he'd always been, he was far different. The damage done by the annihilation discs of the Invid could not be completely reversed. The right half of Breitai's black-haired scalp and nearly half his face were covered by a gleaming alloy prosthesis, a kind of half-cowl, his right eye replaced by a glittering crystal lens. Breitai had always been given to dark moods, but his mutilation at the hands of the enemy had made him distant, cold, and wrathful. Dolza approved. Dolza had summoned Breitai to a spot on the perimeter of the reinforced base, where flowers of life were sprouting underfoot. The Supreme Commander quickly outlined the situation, the details of the long struggle between Zor and the Masters, and Zor's secret plan for the future of protoculture shocked Breitai, as did certain other information that was Dolza's alone to tell. You're my best field commander, Dolza finished. You will lead the expedition to retake the Dimensional Fortress. The sunlight glinted off Breitai's metal skull piece, but it jumped! Sympathy was not part of the Zentradi emotional spectrum. Dolza therefore showed none. You must succeed. You must recover the fortress and its protoculture factory before the Invid do, or we'll lost everything we've worked for. Breitai's features resolved in faux lines of determination. The Dimensional Fortress will be ours, on my oath! Chapter 1. Now, as we talked about in Episode 0, the chapters in the Robotech novel series begin with epigraphs. Uh, these are short passages that are taken from fictitious sources in the Robotech novels universe, such as encyclopedias, books, even quotes from the characters themselves, which is the case in the epigraph for Chapter Number 1, and it reads as follows. I had misgivings like everybody else, but I thought the appearance of SDF-1 just might be a good thing for the human race, after all when I saw how it scared the hell out of the politicians. Remark attributed to Lieutenant Junior Grade Roy Foker in Prelude to Doomsday, A History of the Global Civil War by Malachi Kane. Now the year is 1999, and for a blue-white planet, a planet called Earth, it's on a path of self-destruction. For the last 10 years, it's been involved in a global civil war, which started out as small skirmishes around the planet, but it's escalated to a point where borders and boundaries, once considered sovereign countries, are now open territory to the different factions involved. The call for unity is spearheaded by a World Unification Alliance. However, those that craved power and the rewards from it resisted, and everything pointed out to a thermonuclear solution where there would be no one to impose that power upon. Then came an event that would change the thinking of Homo sapiens forever. An object of never-before-seen proportions appeared in space out of nowhere and was about to make an impact on Earth in both a figurative and literal sense, now and for many years to come. Of course, this object being Zor's Dimensional Fortress, and its descent to Earth caused death and destruction with its shockwaves, where hundreds of cities were pummeled and destroyed, and many, many died. It also created a mass hysteria of end-time proportions, 
Thousands thinking that the time of repentance had come also committed suicide when the object made its approach. As the object slowed, it chose as its crash landing site a small island in the South Pacific, once the site of French atomic tests. The name of this island? Macross. The ship, which shortly after its appearance was called the Visitor, appeared to be heavily damaged and there was no sign of life from it, at least from the outside. The global civil war now became a very, very minor argument compared to this new equation in the history of mankind. Quick alliances were formed by the different warring factions, and a very hard truce was reached as preparations began for an expedition of Earth's new artifact. We're introduced to the character of Roy Foker, tall, blonde, and a fighter pilot to his bones, believing in the honor and code of combat. Also, a member of what became the Internationalist Skull Squadron. The Internationalists were a part of the World Unification Alliance uh, during the war. And he is also going to be a part of the exploration party that is headed by Chopper to the crash site. Piloting the Chopper is T.R. Edwards. Now, uh, this episode, you'll hear a lot about him. But then it will be a while before we hear from him again, but he is a very important character in the Robotech novels universe. Now, he's Foker's complete opposite and antagonist in every which way. They fought each other during the global civil war, and now since truces have been made, uh, you know, now they're on the same side, so to speak. And that antagonism is shown in the following excerpt. Edwards caught the glance. Wanna take over, Foker? Be my guest. No thanks, Colonel. I'm just here to make sure you don't mess up and spike us into the drink. Edwards laughed. Foker, you know what your problem is? You take this war stuff too personally. Tell me something. Do you like flying for a bunch of fascists? Edwards snorted derisively. You think that there's that much difference between sides after 10 years of war? Besides, the nations pay me more in a week than you make in a year. Roy wanted to answer that, but his orders were to avoid friction with Edwards. As if to remind him of that, a sudden aroma wafted under his nose. It was pipe tobacco, but to Roy it always smelled like a soap factory on fire. Global was at it again, but how do you tell your commanding officer that he's breaking ranks, smoking aboard an aircraft? If you're a wise young lieutenant, junior grade, you do not. Roy turned back to study Macross and forgot Global, Edwards, and everything else. There lay the blackened remains of a ship like nothing Earth had ever seen before. Great God, Roy said slowly, and even Edwards had nothing to add. Leading the search party is Captain Henry Global, a commander in the World Unification Alliance and a Russian of cool capabilities. The radiation around the wreck has gone down to levels that permit this investigation. As the chopper lands and preparations are made to explore, a Lance Corporal Murphy gets too close to an opening he discovers on the ship and then is pulled in by a set of metal tentacles into the unknown fortress. Already a team member down, the decision is made to bring in Earth's most renowned mind for a more scientific approach to this expedition. Dr. Emil Wang as a result of the new way of galactic thinking, has become an invaluable commodity to those in power who want to know more about the visitor and what ultimately to do with it. Lang as curious as any scientific mind would be in front of a mile-long alien ship, sends a remote human-sized robot drone into the entry that sucked in Murphy. 
By some way, the entrance opens again at the drone's presence, but strangely, it stops responding to any of Lang's commands. But now, the search party has a way in. He orders everyone into anti-radiation suits, and he makes it clear how the soldiers are to proceed as the novel tells. Get those spotlights on, Lang instructed, and you may chamber around in your weapons, but leave the safeties on. If anyone fires without my direct order, I'll see that he's court-martialed and hung. Unnoticed, T.R. Edwards made a wry face inside his suit helmet and flicked his submachine gun selector over to full auto. From the expedition party, eight Marines are selected, along with Foker, Global, Edwards, and Lang to explore the ship, with a number of Marines left outside to stand guard. Now, in the dark interior of the ship, it was of monumental scale, and a series of complex materials around it, conduit-like structures, and a construction that gave a feel of some sort of fantastic purpose for this vessel. Now, the team going in divides itself into two groups, with Foker leading one with four Marines, Global, Edwards, and Lang in the other with another four. At the same time, the drone that was left at the entrance, the one that stopped responding to Lang's commands, begins its own way into the fortress, on its own and in a more animated fashion. After about a 15-minute trek through the interior, Foker's group becomes Earth's first inhabitants to come into direct contact with an extraterrestrial construct, but of the destructive kind, as Jack writes. Roy was about to get them moving again when he heard someone calling softly. Carruthers, hey man, where you at? Carruthers was the man walking drag at the rear of the file. They all turned back to see what was going on. Carruthers had fallen far behind for some reason, but he was rejoining them, his spots getting nearer. But something about the man's movement wasn't normal. Moreover, his head hung limply, and he appeared to be moving considerably above them, as if on a catwalk. They flashed their beams his way, and stood rooted in astonishment and stark terror. Carruthers' body hung on a line, like a tiny puppet, held in the hand of a humanoid metal monster seventy feet tall. The armored behemoth swung its free hand in their direction. They didn't have time for permission to react. They wouldn't have listened if Lang had denied it anyway. Roy and the Gunny and the other Marines opened fire, the chatter of their submachine guns aloud in their ears. Their tracers lit up in the darkness as the bullets bounced off the monster's armor as if they were paperclips. Its right hand loosed a stream of reddish-orange fury. The Marine disappeared like a zap bug, turned into ash in an instant. Chapter 2 The epigraph reads as follows. I suppose in the back of my mind I was aware that fate had sent my way a chance to be mentioned in the same breath with Einstein, Newton, and the rest. But to tell the truth, I thought little of that. Before the lure of so much new knowledge, any scientist would have made poor old Faust look like a saint. Dr. Emil Lang, Technical Recordings and Notes Roy and what remained of his team empty their weapons on the weapon aimed at them. Another soldier is killed, but somehow Roy and the remaining Marine are able to destroy the metal giant. Strangely enough, though, even the remaining pieces are still moving as though the monster was still alive. Moments later, a second armored behemoth appears, but to examine the remains of the first. Roy and the remaining soldier make their escape as another surprise falls upon them in an already insane situation that McKinney relates. They could have polished us all off, Lieutenant, the gunny said. Roy shook his head, just as confused as the Marine. Maybe they're hurting us along somewhere, I don't know. They took up their way again. 
Roy's hearing was coming back, accompanied by a painful ringing. Maybe they don't want to kill all of us because... The gunny screamed a curse. Roy looked down to see that the deck plates were rippling around their legs like a running stream engulfing them. Meanwhile, in another part of the fortress, Global's group marvels at the complex architecture of the alien ship. It's as if though it keeps changing in appearance as they keep moving. Also, T.R. Edwards finds out the fate of Corporal Murphy, as the novel describes. Edwards was back in moments, face as white as his teeth. You better brace yourselves, Edwards swallowed with difficulty. I found Murphy, but it's a little hard to take. He swallowed again to keep from vomiting. One by one, they went to join him at the entrance to the next compartment, from which an intense light shone. Lang caught the edge of the hatch to steady himself when he saw what was there. In a large translucent tank wired with various life support systems floated the various pieces of Lance Corporal Murphy in a tiny sea of sluggish nutrient fluid. They drifted lazily, here an arm, there the head, sightless eyes wide open, a severed hand bumping gently against a stripped torso. The fluid was filled with fine strands glowing in incandescent greens. Tiny amoeba-like globules flocked to the body parts and away from them again feeding and providing oxygen and removing wastes. Global turned to the Marine behind him. Establish security! Whoever did this may still be around! The men shook off their paralysis and rushed to obey. All that is but one, who was about to pluck out a leg by a white wrinkled foot that had bobbed to the surface. We can't leave them like this! Through the grinding war, the Marines had maintained their honor and their high traditions proudly. Esperita Corps was like the air they breathed. To leave one of their own on the battlefield was to leave a part of themselves. But Lang pulled the grunt back with surprising strength. Don't touch him! Who knows what the solution is? You want to end up pickled in there too? No? Good. Then just draw a specimen with this device and be careful. Shortly after this, Global's team had their own encounter with the metal giants that Foker's team contended with. They fight it out as the floor beneath them begins to move up to a new level, and by some sort of luck, or alien plan, they are reunited with Foker and his lone teammate. The next site is one that even brings more intrigue. Though large in size, it is an area that seems to be adapted to human-sized scale and with something of a command center. The novel gives us the following description. Zor's quarters were as he had left them, so long ago and far away. The sleep module, the workstation, and the rest were built to human scale and function. Lang stared around himself as if in a dream. Despite the many objects and installations that were impossible to identify, there was a certain comprehensibility to the place. Here a desk unit, there a screen of some kind. Roy, Global, and the others were so fascinated that they didn't notice what Lang was doing until they heard the pop and crisp of static. Lang, you fool! Get away from there! But before Global could tear him away from the console, Lang had somehow discovered how to activate it. Waves of distortion chased each other across the screen. Then, a face appeared among the wavering lines. Global's grip on Lang's jacket became limp. Good God, it's human! Not quite, perhaps, but close, I would say, Lang conceded calmly. Zor's face stared out of the screen. The wide, almond eyes seemed to look at each man in the compartment and the mouth spoke in a melodious, chiming language unlike anything the humans had ever heard before. It's a greetings recording, Lang said matter-of-factly. Like those plates and records on the old Voyagers, Roy murmured. 
the alien's voice took on a different tone, and another image flashed on the screen. The humans found themselves looking at an invid shock trooper in action, firing and rending. Some kind of war machine. Nasty, Lang interpreted. As they are mesmerized by Zor's message, the drone robot, which had made its own entrance into the ship earlier, comes through the way in which they were all herded there themselves. Lang approaches the drone and opens the circuit board panel, and is astounded to find that the robot has gone through a change, which is described in the following excerpt. They all crowd around warily, ready to blast the machine to bits. This isn't the original circuitry, Lang said, sounding interested, but not frightened. The components are reshaping themselves. As they stared, wires rift and microchips changed like a miniaturized urban renewal project seen from above by time-lapse photography. Things slid, folded, altered shape and position. It reminded Roy of an unlikely cross between a blossoming flower and those kids' games where the player slides alphanumeric tiles around into new sequences. With all that has happened in viewing Zor's warning message, along with the changes in the drone robot, it is Dr. Lang's conclusion that Earth best be prepared for more visitors. A lot more. Seeing the now animated drone as their only possible means of escape, the team gets ready to move. At the same moment, Lang ventures back to the compartment's control center. He is madly curious to see what powers the console. It is at this moment Lang experiences something that will change his life forever and set on course his destiny in the Robotech novel saga. Jack McKinney describes. He had been right. This was the ship's nerve center, and the council and its peripherals were the nucleus of it all. Lang began form function analysis, fearing that he would never get another chance to study it. Certainly, the ship used no source of power that he could conceive of. Some uncanny alien force coursed through the fallen ship and through the console. Perhaps, if he could get some data on it or get access to it... <coughs> At Lang's cry, they all turned with guns raised, as strobing light threw their shadows tall against the bulkheads. The command center flashed and flowed with power like an unearthly network of electronic blood vessels. The console was surrounded by a blinding aura of harsh radiance that pulsed through the spectrum. Lang, body convulsed in agony, holding fast to the console, shone with those same colors as the enigmatic forces flooding into him. Don't touch him, Glover barked at Roy, who'd been about to attempt a body check to knock Lang clear. Edwards moved to one side, well out of range of the discharges, to get a line of fire on the console that wouldn't risk hitting Lang. Edwards made sure his selector was on full auto and prepared to empty the magazine into the console. But before he could, the alien lightning died away. Lang slumped slowly to the deck. The drone robot begins to move as does the team, with Roy carrying the unconscious Lang over his shoulder. The ship seems to be reconfiguring itself like the circuit panel on the robot, and now it offers the biggest surprise of all in the following excerpt. It was something straight out of legend. The skeleton was still wearing a uniform that was obviously immune to decay. It also wore a belt and harness affair fitted with various devices and pouches. But for the fact that it would have stood some 50 feet tall, it could have been human. The jaw was frozen open in an eternal rictus of agony and death. An area the size and shape of a poker table was burned through the back of its uniform, fringed by blackened fabric. 
Much of the skeletal structure in the wound's line of fire was gone. Must have been some scrap, a marine said quietly, knowingly. Lang was struggling, so Roy let him down. Are you all right, Doc? Roy gaped at him. Lang's eyes had changed, becoming all dark, deep pupils with no iris and no white at all. He had the look of a man in rapture, gazing around himself with measureless approval. Yes, yes, Lang said, nodding in comprehension. I see! What is left of the search team's amazement is canceled by more alien weapons fire as they battle it through to escape their predicament. Now that is the end of chapter two. Now in this novel, there is an interlude, so you can call it a chapter 2.5 because it does have its own epigraph, and it reads as follows. Listen, take the Bill of Rights, the Boy Scout Oath, and the Three Laws of Robotics and stick them where there's no direct dialing, jerk. Good is anything that helps me stay at the top. Bad is whatever doesn't. Got it? Senator Russo to his re-election committee treasurer. Now the search party does eventually make it out of the ship. Global makes his report to one of the brass in the surging power structure of Earth, Admiral Hayes, and it's pointed out that there's very one strange detail. While Global calculates his time inside the fortress around six hours, personnel waiting outside the ship had only 15 minutes go by between entry and exit. The whole report is of little interest to Senator Russo, who is to become, no matter by what means, the head of the new emerging world government, no matter who had what title. His way of thinking is clearly laid out in the following excerpt. The timing of the crash was indeed astounding. Not a month before, these same men had been part of a group that had met to lay the groundwork for one of the most treacherous plots in history. It's true they were confronting the ultimate crisis, the likelihood that the human race would destroy itself. But their solution was not the most benign, just the one that would be most profitable for them. They'd been intent on creating an artificial crisis, something that would stop the war and unite humanity under their leadership. A number of promising scenarios had been developed, including epidemics, worldwide crop failure, and a much less spectacular version of the very thing that had taken place in Earth's atmosphere and on Macross Island. Russo's smile was close to a leer. Gentlemen, I don't believe I'm being presumptuous when I say this is destiny at work. The blindest fool can see that mankind must band together. Under our rule was the unstated subtext. Russo saw that the true power brokers there understood, while Hayes and a few other idealistic dupes were almost teary-eyed with dedication and courage. Suckers. And it never really mattered to the power brokers what side they served, of course. The ideologies and historical causes of the global civil war meant little or nothing to them. Russo's and others like him had given those mere lip service. The important thing was to use the opportunity to gain prestige and power. Russo had joined the internationalists, the world peace and disarmament movement, because they offered personal opportunity. If they hadn't, he would have thrown in with the factionalists without a qualm, so long as they promised him a route to power. Hayes was saying, we must act with all possible speed, throw every available resource into understanding the science behind that ship, into rebuilding it, and using this amazing robo-technology as Dr. Lang insists on calling it. 
Absolutely beautiful, Russo thought. An enormous tax-supported defense project, more expensive and more massive than anything in human history. The opportunities for profit would be incalculable. In the meantime, the military could be kept distracted and obedient, and all the political power would be consolidated. More, this incredible robotechnology business would ensure that the new world government would be absolutely unchallengeable. Now, Russo saw Admiral Hayes as an obedient soldier, but prone to being honest and a possible problem in the future. He's already scheming that if necessary, he can use the Admiral's daughter, Lisa, as a bargaining chip. He also saw that T.R. Edwards would have his uses too because he thinks like Russo. Get whatever you can on your enemies for the moment you can take them out of the game. Permanently. Dr. Lang, with his new eyes that would ultimately help him direct the course of robotechnology, makes his entrance into the room and affirms to all those present that this miracle, as they refer to it, can and will be rebuilt. But he also gives a prophetic statement to the men that would rule the planet. In Jack McKinney's words, Before Russo could say anything, Lang continued, But you used the word miracle. I suppose that may be true. But I want to tell all of you something that Captain Glovel said to me when we finally fought our way out of the ship. He waited a dramatic moment, as his whiteless eyes seemed to take in the whole conference room and look beyond. Glovel said, This will save the human race from destroying itself, Doctor, and that makes it a kind of miracle. But history and legend tell us that miracles bear a heavy price. Chapter 3 We begin with the following epigraph. There's a movie my grandfather loved as a boy, and my father sat me on his knee and showed me when I was a little kid. The shape of things to come. The part that made the biggest impression, naturally, was when the scientist aviator climbs out of his futuristic plane and looks the local fascist right in the eye and tells him there'll be no more war. Babe, how many times I've wished it was that easy. Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, in the letter to Lieutenant Claudia Grant. Now, ten years have passed since the crash of Zor's Dimensional Fortress on Earth. And as foreseen by Senator Russo in our last episode, the world does come under one single government. And every resource is used to rebuild the ship, and it has now become the pride and joy of the new military establishment, the Robotech Defense Force. And now that it's rebuilt, it's time for launching day, and a celebration is in order. Roy Foker, now a lieutenant commander in the RDF, contemplates on the last 10 years in the following excerpt. Fireworks, Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker murmured to himself, neck arched back so that he could watch the bright flowers of light. The gigantic mass of Superdimensional Fortress 1 blocked out much of the sky, but he could still see skyrockets burst into brilliant light above every corner of Macross City. There were banners and flags, band music, and the constant laughter and cheering of thousands upon thousands of people. Fireworks instead of bombs. Celebrations instead of battles, Roy nodded. I hope it's always like this. Parades and picnics. We've seen enough war. Macross Island had changed a lot in ten years, all for the better, in Roy's opinion. After the world government made rebuilding the alien wreck its first priority, a bright modern city had been erected around the crash site, along with landing strips used to airlift supplies and equipment, construction materials, technicians and workers and their families, and military personnel. A busy deep water harbor had been dredged too. Two colossal aircraft carriers were anchored there, 
though they were dwarfed by the vessel in whose shadow Roy stood. Flights of helos and jetcraft made their passes overhead, rendering salute to the Earth's new defender, Superdimensional Fortress 1. Now, no launch day would be complete without the dignitaries from the world government, which include one Senator Russo and the commander of the SDF-1, Captain Henry Glovel. And as they are making their way to the SDF-1, uh, there's one person that is feeling a little bit left out from all the celebrating, and that is Mayor Tommy Luan. He is the mayor of Macross City, of course, named after the island. And... He is not only not only kind of uh, miffed for being left out, but he's also thinking about what will be life like after the SDF-1, as he tells one of its constituents in the following excerpt. Of course, SDF-1 was only leaving for a test flight, to be followed by a short shakedown cruise if everything checked out well. But the mayor could be right. There was no telling when the fortress might return. Certainly, Macross would never be the same place again. We'll all miss her, Vern conceded, but aren't you proud to see her launched at last? Of course, but if the test is successful, we'll all be unemployed, the mayor burst out. Vern wasn't looking forward to closing down his business either, but he remembered the war very well. He had to admit he liked the idea of the battle fortress being out there in space, guarding the planet. A lot better than the mayor seemed to. Vern sighed. A lot of people had forgotten just why Macross City existed, but Vern kept his opinion to himself. The motorcycles and limousine roared by. Big Shot's making their grand entrance, the mayor sniffed. It was well known that the mayor hadn't been invited to any of the important ceremonies. The world leaders were keeping the prize honors for themselves. Now, while the mayor may be a little bit better at how things are turning out, rest assured, in the Robotech novels universe, Tommy Luan does have his role to play. Now, where there is a celebratory air outside of the ship, inside the ship, it is an air of preparedness and efficiency. We are introduced to the character of Lisa Hayes, the first officer of Superdimensional Fortress 1. She has made a career out of the military, and not just by being Admiral Hayes' daughter, as the novel tells us. Up on the bridge, Commander Lisa Hayes arrived to make sure everything would be squared away for launching. Admiral Hayes' daughter had always made it a point of honor to show more merit, more skill at her job, and more dedication to the service than anyone around her, so that there could be no question of favoritism when the time came for promotion. She carved out an amazing career for herself. At 24, she'd been made first officer of SDF-1. A lot of that was due, no doubt, to her familiarity with the ship's systems. With the exception of Dr. Lang, no one had such a complete and comprehensive knowledge of the vessel's every bolt and button. But there were her endless commendations and top evaluations as well, and two decorations for courage under fire. Some people thought her too severe, too single-minded in her obsession with duty, but no one accused her of not earning her rank. She paused to survey the bridge, a slim, tall, pale young woman with blonde brown hair that bobbed, confined in graceful locks against her shoulders. Her subordinates were already at their duty stations. Now, along with Lisa Hayes as part of the bridge crew, you have Claudia Grant, Sammy, Kim, and Vanessa. Now, the latter three we're going to get to know more about in future readings and future episodes. For right now, in the following excerpt, we see the contrast between Claudia and Lisa's approach to duty and also to personal matters, and this being that they are best friends. 
Claudia, you stayed out all night knowing you and Roy both had flight duty today? Duty was everything to Lisa. She had trouble understanding how anyone could be so casual about such an important mission. But there was also something else, something about Claudia's love affair with the handsome, heroic Roy Foker. Not jealousy, but rather a feeling of Lisa's own loneliness. It brought out an uncharacteristic confusion to her, a sudden emptiness that made her doubt the principles by which she lived her life. She shied away from it, reasserting control over herself by acting every inch of the first officer. But Lisa wasn't the only one who was angry. Claudia set her hands on her hips. So, what's the big fuss about, Lisa? We won't let it affect our performance on duty. After all, we're not children, and you're not our mother. Lisa felt her cheeks growing red. Your responsibilities to the ship come first, Claudia. Neither one was backing away from the confrontation, and Claudia looked like she was running out of patience. And given her size and temper, and the fact that she was an accomplished hand-to-hand -hand fighter, Claudia was nobody to antagonize unnecessarily. My private life is my own business, nobody else's. Claudia stopped herself just short of some cutting remark. Why don't you try loosening up for change, Lisa, for example? But she got hold of herself instead. Now then, let's get to work, all right? She pointed toward Lisa's duty stations. Get out of here. Lisa hesitated, unused to backing away from a fight, and still angry, but feeling she'd overstepped her authority. Just then, Vanessa said slyly, Lisa doesn't understand about men, Claudia. She's in love with the spaceship. And remember, they are best friends, but hey, best friends fight all the time, so. But uh, she's not going to get anywhere in an argument like this with Claudia Grant, so Lisa drops it, and a new element is thrown into the story. And it is a visitor who is attending the launch ceremonies of the original visitor. And in the following excerpt, uh, I think it could best be described as the beginning. For one, Lisa Hayes and the visitor attending the launch ceremonies. Lisa opened the communication link, resolving to try to smooth things out with her friends. She'd so much wanted the day to be right, to be marked by excellence and top performance. Why couldn't anyone share her drive for perfection? Perhaps she was simply fated to be the outcast, the oddball. Attention aircraft approaching on course 107, she said coolly. Please identify yourself. A youngish male voice came in response. This is Rick Hunter. I have an invitation for today's ceremonies. Invitation number 203. Lisa checked it against another computer display, although she found herself irked by the job. The SDF-1 was set to launch, and she was expected to act as an air traffic tech. But she responded, That's confirmed as an invitation from Lieutenant Commander Foker. Foker. Lisa kept the motion out of her voice and avoided meeting Claudia's eye, finishing, Follow course 57 for landing. Roger, the voice said cheerfully and signed off. With all the important things I have to worry about, Lisa mumbled to herself, they also have to saddle me with babysitting the Rick Hunters of this world? Chapter 4 The epigraph is as follows. All right, you win, big brother. I'll come to your party. I'll even put up with all those military types you hang around with. But try not to make it too boring, okay? Rick Hunter's RSVP to Roy Foker's invitation to the SDF-1's launch ceremonies. Enter Rick Hunter. Young, brash, bordering on in between 
proud and just plain arrogant. His legend, or misadventures, you can take your pick, begin in the next excerpt. Rick maneuvered his ship smoothly through the traffic, relying not on his computers, but on his own talent and training, a point of pride. He was the offspring of a proud, daring breed, last of the barnstormers, the stump flyers, and seat-of-the-pants winged daredevils. He was 18 years old and hadn't been outflown since, well, long before his voice had changed from a kid's to a young man's. His plane was a nimble little racer of his own design, a roomy one-seater, white with red trim, powered primarily by an oversized prop fan engine, but hiding a few surprises underneath its sleek fuselage. Rick had named it the Mockingbird, a fittingly arrogant name for the undisputed star of the last of the flying circuses. He tossed a dark forelock of hair back and adjusted his tinted goggles, then went into a pushover and power dive for the SDF-1. This Robotech stuff looked impressive, but maybe it was time somebody showed these military flyboys that it was the pilot that mattered most, not some pile of mere metal. While Rick makes his approach, the festivities continue on the ground, and it is time to introduce one of the fangs of the Defense Force, the Veritech Fighters. And there's no one better else to do it than Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, leader of the Skull Squadron, as the novel continues. And now we present an amazing display of aerial acrobatics, demonstrating the amazing advances we have made through robotechnology. Lieutenant Commander Roy Foker, leader of the Veritech Fighters Skull Team, will describe and explain the action for us. Roy made his entrance to enthusiastic applause. He was known to and well-liked by most people on Macross Island. Tall and handsome in his uniform, the blonde hair still full and thick, he stopped before the microphone stand. He gave a snappy salute, then fell into parade rest and began his address. Today, ladies and gentlemen, you'll see how we've applied human know-how to understanding and harnessing a complex alien technology. Overhead, a half-dozen swift, deadly Veritech fighters peeled off to begin their performance. Keep your eyes on planes 2 and 4, Roy went on as 2 and 4 lined up for the first maneuver, engines blaring. Flying at speeds of 500 miles per hour, only 50 feet above the ground, they will pass within just a few yards of one another. Robotechnology makes such precision possible. Now before the Veritech pilots can get into their demonstration, Rick Hunter and his Mockingbird decide to disrupt things, much to the disapproval of one Roy Foker, as the following excerpt shows us. Roy was just about grinning in spite of himself. People who didn't watch their step every moment were liable to become Rick Hunter's straight men. Roy decided to give him back a bit of his own. You haven't changed a bit, have you, kid? Well, this isn't the amateur flying circus. My men are real pilots. Amateur, huh? Rick drawled. He looked off in the distance and saw the Veritech fighters in a diamond formation for a power climb, preparing to do the bomb burst maneuver. I'm going to have to make you eat those words, Commander. Coming in. Stop clouding around, Rick. Look out! Mockingbird swooped down in a hair-raising dive, barely missing the speaker's platform. So low that Roy had to duck to avoid getting his head taken off. A lot of people in the crowd hit the dirt too, and most of them cried out in shock. Roy caught another glimpse of the pretty young thing in the front row. She seemed thrilled and happy, not in the least frightened. Roy spun as the Mockingbird zoomed off, building on the acceleration it had picked up in its dive. 
Suddenly, as the little aircraft was safely away from the crowd, covers blew free from six booster jet pods mounted around the turbofan cowling at the rear of the ship, and powerful gusts of flames lifted it into a vertical climb. The crowd went, aww. Leaving streamers of rocket exhaust, the Mockingbird went ballistic, quickly overtaking the slower-moving formation of Veritex. Get out of there, Roy yelled up at him, not even bothering with the mic, knowing it was pointless. Headstrong was a word they'd invented with Rick Hunter in mind. Rick cut in full power, came up into formation perfectly, becoming part of the display as the Veritex completed their climb and arced away in different directions, like a huge version of the afternoon skyrockets. The crowd was applauding wildly, cheering. Roy shook his fist again, furious, but a part of him was proud of his friend. Once Rick is through clowning around and lands, the Big Brother and Little Brother team catch up. No blood relation. Rick does hold some resentment uh, to Roy for never returning to the flying circus he was part of, which was run by Rick's late father. But Roy tells him one of the now famous lines in the Robotech story. This Robotech thing is so important, I just couldn't give it up. It gets in your blood or something, I don't know. Besides Robotech, he also has other interests as the next novel paragraphs show. Roy gave him an enigmatic smile. Robotechnology has a way of affecting the things around it, sometimes even non-Robotech machines. Rick groaned. Robotech again? Jason, you'll make yourself sick. I don't care, Jason wailed. Maybe you could tie a can of soda to a fishing pole and lure him home, miss, Roy suggested. Minmay turned to him, still definitely keeping the kid from scoring the petite cola. She broke into a winsome smile. She was of Chinese blood, Roy figured, though she had strange blue eyes. Not that he was interested. Claudia would probably take a swing at him and connect if she found out he was roving. Still, something about Min Mei's smile made her irresistible. Oh, you're the officer from the stage. You were very, very funny, Min Mei giggled, then turned to the little boy sternly. That's it. We're going home. Come on, Jason. Don't make me spank you. She lugged the boy away as the petite cola machine made half-hearted attempts to clinch a sale against all hope. Well, Roy, Rick commented elaborately droll, I see you're still a big ladies, man. While Rick and Roy have their eyes on the girl, in space there are stirrings. Changes of the fabric of the space-time continuum that signify the end of a search and the beginning of destiny for a planet. The novel continues. Far out beyond the orbit of Earth's moon, a portentous tremble shook the space-time continuum as if it were a spider web. It was only a preliminary disturbance, yet it was exacting and of great extent. A force beyond reckoning was making tentative contact on a day that marked a turning point in the history of the unsuspecting Earth. Out in space, vast forces were coalescing, Nothing Earth's detectors could perceive yet, though that would happen soon. Soon, but too late for Earth. Contact had been made. An inconceivable gap was about to be bridged. A marvel of science put to hellish use. In deep space, dimensions folded and transition began. Death 
was about to come calling. Chapter 5, and the epigraph is as follows. From the first, there were anomalies about the situation on the target world, things that gave me pause. The second guessers would have it that I was remiss in not advising caution more strongly, but one did not antagonize Great Britai with too much talk of circumspection. You see, not at least without great risk. Exodor, as quoted in Lapstein's interviews. The crash of the SDF-1 ten years ago was a historic moment for mankind. Ten years later, a new visitor makes its appearance in Earth's vicinity of the universe. But this visitor is in the form of a much greater threat than ten global civil wars, McKinney describes. The stars shimmered and wavered, as if shivering with dread, and well they should. The forces that bound the universe were briefly snarled by a tremendous application of energy. The dimensional warp and wolf pulled apart for a moment. In a precisely chosen zone of space, beyond Luna's orbit, it was as if a piece of the primordial fireball that gave birth to the cosmos had been brought back into existence. Molts bright and hot as novas, infinitesimal bits of the cosmic string were spewed out of the rift in space-time, like burning sparks of gunpowder from some unimaginable cannon shot. The burning detritus of non-space moving at speeds approaching that of light itself, consumed almost as soon as they came in touch with three-dimensional reality. Larger anomalies like furious comets flared here and there in the wash of light. Then there was another explosion beyond description, a pure emission of unadulterated hell. It pushed outward from a rip in the fabric of the universe, taking on shape and shedding a raging wave of incandescence as if it were water. The shape became longer, more forceful, menacing. The Zentradi had come at last. The main goals of the Zentradi are conquest and the destruction of anything that gets in their way towards conquest. But this mission is not one of that, but recovery. One that has lasted ten years for the Zentradi fleet commander, Britai, as the novels tell us. Britai studied the Earth coldly. The finder beam is locked on this planet. Are you sure this is the source of those emanations? His voice was huge and deep, with a resonance that shook the bulkheads. Off to one side, Exodor, Britai's advisor, kowtowed slightly, showing deference from habit even though he wasn't in Britai's line of vision. Yes, sir, I'm positive. Britai pursed his lips in thought. They could have executed a refold. The thought of losing his quarry again was almost unbearable but Britao avowed no emotion to show. It's doubtful, sir, Exodor said quickly. There was no evidence of a second jump into hyperspace. Savagely, Britai thought again of those traitors to his race and their narrow escape. Hmm, they couldn't have gotten far in their condition, and they would have to land in order to repair the ship. He looked to Exodor. That's a logical conclusion, I think. Exodor inclined his head respectfully. I agree, it would seem very likely, sir. Britai was used to acting on his own instincts and deductions, but it was reassuring that Exodor, the most brilliant intellect of the Zentradi race, was in accord. Britai considered Exodor for a moment, small, almost a dwarf by the standards of their species, and frail into the bargain. Gaunt, with protruding, seemingly litless eyes and a wild thatch of odd, rust-red hair, Exodor was still the embodiment of the Zentradi law and tradition, and more valuable to the towering commander than any battle fleet. 
Yet with all that, he was loyal, almost selfless in his devotion to Britai. Britai gave Exodor a curt nod. Very well. Dispatch a scout team for a preliminary reconnaissance. In the Zatrati warrior religion, efficiency was a virtue ranking only behind loyalty and courage in battle. The words were scarcely out of Britai's mouth when two of the fleet's heavy cruisers detached themselves and advanced on the unwary planet. While the aliens begin their approach, Roy is giving Rick a hands-on look at one of the Veritech fighters, and we are now introduced to what has become one, if not the most controversial concept in the Robotech novels universe. And yes, at some point we will have an entire segment, hell, I might even do an entire episode on this subject, but let's get back to our story. He ran his hand along the fuselage. It looks great. How does it handle? Roy thought that one over. Hmm. Well, why don't you climb aboard and see for yourself? You really mean that? Uh-huh. I'll write piggyback behind you. It was, perhaps, bending the rules a bit, though familiarization flights were scheduled for VIPs later in the day. Still, a little sample of what the Veritech could do might change Rick's attitude about military service, and the service could sure use a flyer like Rick Hunter. Rick was already scrambling up the boarding ladder, peering into the cockpit. The controls look pretty complicated, Roy called up, but I'll check you out on them. Roy looked down and smirked. I'm not worried. If you can learn to fly one of these things, I sure can. Roy snorted. Don't be so modest. When Rick was in the pilot's seat and Roy in the rear seat, Roy handed Rick a red-visored Robotech helmet. Rick turned it over in his hands, examining the interior. Whoa, what kind of helmet is this? What's all this stuff inside? Receptors. They pick up electromagnetic activity in your brain. You might say that the helmet's a mind reader in some ways. The receptors were just like part of the helmet's padding. Soft yielding, no safety hazard. But Rick wasn't so sure he liked the idea of having his head wired. What are they for? For flying a Veritech, buddy boy. You'll still handle a lot of manual controls, but there are things this baby does that it can only do through advanced control systems. Rick hiked himself around in his seat and leaned out to look back at Roy. Look. I saw your guys flying, remember? What's so special about these crates that you have to wear a thinking cap just to steer one? Roy told him. The real secrets aren't supposed to go public until the politicians are through with all their blabbing. But I'll tell you this. The machine you're sitting in isn't like anything humans have ever built. It's as different from Mockingbird as Mockingbird is from a pair of shoes. Because you just don't pilot a Robotech ship, Rick. You live it. Despite the celebration going on, the appearance of the Zentradi does not go unnoticed by the Defense Force. Once word reaches Captain Global, he knows that the fireworks in the sky won't be the only explosions he'll be seeing that day, as Brian and Jim describe. The liaison cupped his hand to Global's ear and said, Excuse me, sir. Urgent message from the space monitoring station. A strange flash of light and an explosion. Tremendous radiation readings accompanied by irregularities in solar gravitational fields. In spite of the warmth of the day, Global suddenly felt cold all over. The same sort of event occurred ten years ago. You know what happened then, don't you? The aide was trying to conceal his fear, nodding. That's when the alien ship arrived. Global assumed the icy calm of a seasoned captain. Better check it out. Come with me. Global was descending the platform steps as Russo announced what a great honor it was to introduce the commander of SDF-1. Henry Global. For once, Russo did not know what to say. Come back!
back here. You have to make a speech, he shouted. Global never even looked around. The time for speeches was over. Well, now the humans know of the aliens' presence in their vicinity of space. But also, Zor's Dimensional Fortress knows that they're here and begins to take actions on its own, much to the dismay of the bridge crew who have no idea what forces have all of a sudden activated their ship, as Jack McKinney describes. Unprecedented, impossible-to-interpret mechanisms had self-activated in the ship's power plant, the great sealed engines that not even Lang had dared open and the many different kinds of alien apparatus connected to it were doing bewildering things to the SDF-1 structure, as well as its systems, making the humans helpless bystanders. The defense system is activating the main gun, Claudia reported. Horrified? Far off at the great starship's bow, gargantuan servo motors hummed and groaned. The huge twin booms that made up the forward portion of the ship moved to either side on colossal cam-like devices. The booms locked into place, looking like a fantastic tuning fork. The ship's reconstruction had the bow high up now, pointed out above the end of Macross Island's cliff line at the open sea. Lisa's mind raced. The main gun had never been fired. No one was even sure how powerful it was. That test was to be reserved for empty space. But if it's salvoed now, the ensuing death and destruction might well be greater than that created by the ship's original crash. At the same time, everyone aboard could feel the super shift shifting slightly on the massive keel blocks, the monolithic rest on which it lay. Warning klaxons and horns were deafening. The SDF-1's aiming at its gun, Lisa realized, but at what target? Shut down all systems, she ordered Claudia. Claudia, trying the master cutoff switch several times to no effect, looked at Lisa helplessly. It doesn't work! A sudden glare from the bow lit the bridge with red-orange brilliance throwing their flickering shadows on the bulkhead behind them. Around and between the forward booms, tongues of orange star flame were shooting and whirling and arching back and forth. The fantastic energy cascade began sluicing up the booms toward their tips, sparks snapping, seemingly eager to be set free. And still, Lisa could think of nothing she could do. Just then, the hatch opened and Glovil hurried in so quickly that he bumped his head on the frame. He didn't spare time, or his usual swearing at the people, who refitted the largest machine ever known for not providing a little more headroom. Captain, the main guns are preparing to fire! And fire it does. McKinney continues. The Zentradi heavy cruisers, closing in on the unsuspecting Earth, barely had time to realize they were about to die. By some unimaginable level of control, the blinding shaft of energy split in two. The twin beams hold each heavy cruiser through and through, along their long axes. Armor and weapons and hull, superstructure and the rest were vaporized as the beams hit, skewering them. They expanded like overheated gas bags, skins peeling off, debris exploding outward, only to disappear, blown to nothingness, an instant later in globes of bright mass energy conversions. From his command station, Britai watched impassively arms folded across his great chest as the project beam displayed the death of the two heavy cruisers. Now we know for sure. The ship is on that planet. This time he didn't bother soliciting Exodor's advice. All ships advance, but exercise extreme caution. The Zentradi Armada took up proper formation, ships of the line moving to the fore and closed on the target world. Now that the game is afoot, Global realizes that the last 10 years have not only meant the end of the global civil war and the rebuilding of the SDF-1, but also in preparation for the day where someone would come looking for it 
as the following excerpt describes his thoughts. Global suddenly felt old, older than the ship, the island, the sea. He wasn't about to speculate aloud, not even to his trusted bridge gang, but he was just about certain he knew. And if he was right, it put the weight of a planet on his shoulders. Chapter 6 We begin with the following epigraph. While Captain Glovel gets admittedly deserved credit for his handling of the disaster that day, male historians frequently gloss over Glovel's straightforward statement that if it weren't for the women on SDF-1's bridge, their nerve and gallantry and professionalism, the Robotech War would have been over before had it fairly begun. Betty Greer, Post-Feminism and the Global War our first excerpt is Captain Global taking this new turn of events, um, uh, pretty well. And he also finds out that the captain doesn't always have the last say on certain things. Sammy, Vanessa, Kim. They exchanged looks with one another as Lisa and Claudia traded facial signals. Global was laughing, a deep belly laugh, his shoulders shaking. Claudia and Lisa saw that they were both thinking the same thing. If Glovel, their source of strength and calm, had lost his grip, all was lost. Captain, what is it? Lisa ventured. What are you laughing about? Glovel stopped laughing, crashing his fist against the observation bull ledge. It was so obvious, we should have known. A booby trap, of course. Claudia and Lisa said it at the same time. Booby trap, sir? Yes, it's one of the oldest tricks in military history. A retreating enemy leaves behind hidden explosives and such. He clamped his cold pipe between his teeth. The automatic firing of the main guns means that enemies have approached close enough to be a threat to us. He drew his tobacco bag out of the breast pocket of his uniform jacket. Captain Glovel! Sammy was up out of her chair. Everyone turned to her, wondering what the new alarm was. No smoking on the bridge, sir, Sammy said. Strictly against regulations. Claudia groaned and clapped a hand to her forehead. Lisa reflected. Nothing throws Sammy. I was just holding it. I wasn't going to light it, Global said defensively. The unreality of the situation retreated with Sammy's interruption. There were both good things and bad things about having one's bridge crew be like family. But doubts were past now. Global barked. Hot scramble all fighters and sound general quarters. I'm declaring a red alert. Another claw of the Robotech Defense Force is the Orbital Armors and its arsenal of ships. They historically become the first Earth military force to engage an alien enemy in space, and as the next excerpt describes, history will not be kind to them with the result. Earth's forces fought with savage determination, but the unevenness in technologies was instantly apparent. Aboard the alien command ship, Pretai studied the engagement solemnly in the project beam images and monitors, listening to his staff's relayed readouts with only a small part of his attention. Very heavy resistance, sir, Exeter observed. Yes, Pretai allowed, but why are they using such primitive weapons? Our lead ships have broken through. It's unbelievable this sacrifice they're making. Some sort of trick, no doubt. Exeter considered that. Yes, it is puzzling. Pretai whirled on him. It makes no sense, then? Even to you? There has to be a reason, but it's beyond me. 
surely the Robotech Masters, he was interrupted by an urgent message from the tech at the threat prioritization computers. Commander Britai, two enemy cruiser-class vessels are approaching. They could be the ones who launched the missile bombardment. Britai smiled, but his single eye was chilly. Destroy them. Specially designated main and secondary batteries opened fire. Phased particle beam arrays and molecular disruptors. Long range and fearsomely powerful. Armor 2 was hit on the first volley as hundreds of spears of high-resolution blue fury ranged in on it. It tried to evade the barrage. House-sized pieces of armor and superstructure were blown from it. Many of the smaller defending craft were completely disintegrated. Britai, waiting for effective counterfire, lost patience. Perhaps the foe's hesitation to use reflex weaponry fit into some strange plan. But to forego use of any advanced technology to sacrifice troops to this kind of slaughter was perverse. Incredulous, Britai wondered if somehow this victory was going to be far easier than it had seemed when that first mighty bolt rose from Terra. Those idiots behave as though they don't even know how to use their own weapons. Full barrage, all cannon. The Zentrani command ship cut loose again with all forward gun turrets. Armor 2 was instantly holed through in a hundred places, the enemy beams penetrating it like ice picks through a cigar box. Hull integrity went at once, and internal gravity. Hatches and seals blew, and space began sucking the atmosphere from the cruiser, tossing crew and contents around like toys. Still more hits made a sieve of the pride of the Orbital Defense Command and destroyed its power plant. A moment later, it disappeared in a horrendous outpouring of energy while lesser ships all around it met a similar fate. Although a war veteran, Henry Glovel contemplates what is ahead, and in the following excerpt he would want any other alternative than the order he's about to give. But as any seasoned veteran, he knows that the planet is in peril, and it is his duty to protect it. Glovel sat in his command chair, Fingers steeple, chin resting on pressing thumbs. I had hoped this moment wouldn't come in my lifetime. SDF-1 kept us from exterminating ourselves and let us achieve a worldwide peace. But now it has brought a new danger down upon us. We face extinction at the hands of aliens whose power we can only guess at. Henry Global's mind ranged back across a decade to that first investigation of the wrecked SDF-1. Miracles have a price, and this one, I think, will be very very high. Claudia and Lisa and the other members of the bridge crew swapped quick worried looks. I had hoped that war was a thing of the past. We all had. Glovo looked up from his distraction like a knight at the end of his prayer vigil, ready to take up a shining sword, a gleaming shield. But here we go again, like it or not. He rose to his feet, shoulders back, and a vivid current of electricity that hadn't been there a moment before hummed in the air. Global was suddenly strong as an old oak. All right, give the order to move out. Britai and Exodor are surprised at the look of Zor's reconstructed ship. Despite their initial show of superiority, Britai knows that any enemy with the ship at their disposal makes them a threat, especially with the prize the ship contains. The novels continue with the exchange between the Zentridi commander and his trusted advisor. But what about the crew? Zor's traitors wouldn't just let these creatures have the vessel. Maybe they perished in the fighting with the Invid, or in the crash, Exodor suggested delicately. It was an answer of high probability. 
Britai saw that at once, chose not to contest it, and congratulated himself on having a friend and advisor like Exodor. Even so, the commander sidestepped the discomforting idea that the primitives were antagonists to be feared. The ship would have been terribly damaged, and these primitives wouldn't have the technology to repair it. This centrati arrogance of ours gets worse with every generation, Exodor thought, even as he readied his answer. Someday we may all pay for it. I know, sir, but is there any other explanation? It is a Robotech vessel, and we know they have... Reflex weaponry! Precisely, and this makes them very dangerous, so we must exercise extreme caution. Britai turned back to the project beam displays, uttering a feral growl. The instruments and transparent bowl rang with it. A command center coordinator's voice came up over the intercom. Target pinpointed, Commander! We're launching fighters! Britai and Exodor contemplated the image of the Dimensional Fortress. Chapter 7 The epigraph is as follows. If there exists on record a stranger familiarization flight than Rick Hunter's VT Shakedown, I have been unable to find it. Zachary Fox, Jr. VT, The Men and the Mecca with the automatic firing of the SDF-1's main gun, Roy puts on hold Rick's test flight to check out what the situation is, leaving Rick to eventually snooze in the cockpit of the Exhibition Veritech fighter. One little problem arises. Roy Skull Squadron is called for duty to meet the approaching enemy, and Big Brother forgets about Little Brother for the moment. While Rick is relaxing and all the fireworks are going around, as the next excerpt shows, his sleep, and eventually his life, are woken up by the voice of the SDF-1's first officer, who orders him to take off to join the battle. You don't mean me, do you, lady? But just then he became aware of distant explosions, not thunder, but the reports of incoming fire. And there were blazes in the city, and smoke and damage. Crew people were rushing everywhere, fueling and arming and guiding planes, getting them airborne. Meanwhile, up in the air, what were all those intertangled contrails and afterburner glows and explosions and tracers? Huh? What? Rick Hunter asked himself weakly. People were scrambling around the plane in which she sat, readying it. Don't waste any more time, the pale face in the screen scolded. Take off immediately and join your wingmen. The fighter squadron's outnumbered as it is. Rick gritted his teeth. What do you mean take off? The runway's demolished. And so it was. One of the primaries and trotty targets, one of the few to be hit effectively. The young woman on the screen appeared to be counting to control her temper. Runway 2 is operable. You're fully armed, and your engines will overheat very quickly at high standby, so prepare for immediate takeoff. Now the next excerpt gives us one of those what-if moments in the Robotech saga. What if Rick had just swallowed his pride? Rick was to admit later that that would have been a very good time to come clean and admit that he had no idea what was going on, that he was a non-combatant and needed to be shown to a shelter. But that would have entailed admitting that he didn't know how to fly the aircraft in which he was sitting, that he couldn't, that he was, in short, nothing but a bystander, a hick, just like the people who gawked up at him at the flying circus. And when you regard yourself as the greatest pilot in the world, an admission like that is extremely difficult. Besides, there was that irritating female on the screen. Well, 
Okay, if you insist. Rick drew a deep breath, took the controls, and gave himself a quick run-through, remembering all the stuff that Roy had told him. He waggled rudders and played around for a second, then increased throttle, taxied out, and stood the fighter nearly on its tail, like a meteor in reverse. A late Zentradi missile blew a hole the size of a city block where he'd been parked a few seconds before. He was hoping the ground crews had all gotten clear as the Veritech responded to his demands for speed. Wow, the proverbial bat! He adjusted wing sweep and camber and angle of attack, going ballistic, wingtips leaving wispy lines of contrail like spider's thread. And though he would never have admitted it, he was more than a little intimidated. He was riding a rocket. He punched a hole in a cloud, then found himself in the middle of a vast, swirling, gladiatorial combat. The biggest dogfight since the close of what they called World War II. Whoa! Well, Rick finally gets to test fly a Veritech, but right into battle. Eventually, he does join up with Roy, so in a sense, things do go as they were originally intentioned. Rick and Roy up in the sky together, as McKinney describes. Hey, Foker, would you mind telling me what's going on around here? Roy had just finished dusting a bogey off of Scullade's tail. He switched the communications screen over to ship to ship and was, he admitted, not at all surprised to see Rick Hunter's face. How's it feel to be a fighter pilot? What are you talking about, Rick brother? I'm not a fighter pilot. In fact, I... Ah! That last, as a wash of light came through Rick's canopy, and Roy's screen dissolved in a storm of distortion. There had been explosions just before the cutoff. In fighter jock's lingo, he tuned out. Tuning out was terminal. But Roy cut in maximum thrust, checking his situation displays, heading for his friend's location. Hold on, Rick, I'm coming. The Veritech's thrust pushed him back, deep into his seat. Roy felt tremendous relief when he sighted VT-120 flying level and unharmed. Roy caught up and fell in on Rick's wingtip. You weren't hit. It was just a close one. You all right? The alien that had come so close to nailing Rick was coming around for another try. Woo! Yeah, I'm okay, Rick decided. Roy moved into the lead just a bit. The enemy fighter was closing fast. Combat flying scary for everyone first time out, he said. You'll get used to it, though. It's not that much different from the good old days at the flying circus. So saying, Roy thumbed the trigger on his control stick and sent two air-to-air -air stilettos, zooming to score direct hits on the invader and blow it to flaming bits. Yeah, but I never got shot at in the circus, Roy. Funny, but now the flying circus seemed like another life, a million years ago. You'll get used to it. Just tag along with me and we'll start on your on-the-job training, if you can keep up with me. The old smirk was back on Rick's face. If? I'll do my best not to leave you in my backwash. The backwash talk comes back and bites Hunter right in the ass as the enemy takes him out. And he's headed for a fatal crash landing towards the SDF-1. Lisa Hayes, thinking him just another combat pilot, orders him to change to configuration B. For Rick, that must mean befuddled, as he has no clue what the commander is talking about. What happens in the next excerpt can only be described as classic Robotech. You don't know? This one must have really lost it. Complete panic. Listen, pull down the control marked B on the left side of your instrument panel. The ground was very near. Rick, dizzy and almost unconscious from the G-forces, somehow guided his hand to the knob in question having a little trouble sorting it out from an identical one next to it marked G, moving it down its slot. 
The Veritech abruptly slowed in its tailspin, stabilizing, beginning to level off. At the same time, Rick could feel the entire ship start to shudder and shift, its aerodynamics changing in some way that he couldn't comprehend. He could feel vibrations as if the fighter was changing. What's it doing? The fighter was still descending. The streets of Macross City loomed up before the canopy. Rick had been a pilot long enough to know that since its flight characteristics had changed so dramatically, there was no other answer except that the shape of the Veritech had somehow altered. What he didn't realize and couldn't see from the cockpit was that the ship had begun undergoing a process Dr. Lang had dubbed Mechamorphosis. It was no longer configured like a conventional fighter, but had instead gone to Guardian, GMO, on its way to be. In this transitional state, it resembled a great metal bird of prey, an eagle, with sturdy metal legs stretched to set down and wings deployed, human-like arms and hands outstretched. But before Rick could figure out what had happened, or the fighter could complete the shift to B, the Veritech crashed into the upper floors of an office building at an intersection in Macross City. The Mechamorphosis what will become the standard word for all the Veritech Mecha in the Robotech Novels universe. In our final excerpt for this episode, shit is about to get real for one Rick Hunter, and ironically, his days of hotshot and certainty, well, let's just say, are over. Rick Hunter could still feel the plane shifting, changing all around him. In fact, in some way he couldn't figure out, he could sense it, could actually feel it. Rick sat where he was, realizing he didn't know how to eject. Even if the system was a zero-zero type that would let him survive a standstill ground-level ejection, which was far from the case. It felt as if the crazy Robotech fighter was coming to a stop. He readied himself for a quick escape, not wishing to be in the neighborhood if a few tons of highly volatile jet fuel suddenly took a notion to catch fire. But the Robotech ship had one last surprise for him. The relatively smooth slide became a lurch as the plane snagged on some final obstruction. The fighter heaved and Rick's helmeted head slammed into the instrument panel. If he hadn't been wearing the flight helmet, it would have been the end. As it was, he saw stars and nearly lost consciousness. But the Veritech was unhurt. With a creaking of girders and the racket of tons of rubble being moved, the machine began to extricate itself. The mechamorphous to B mode was complete, and the fighter was now a battleoid. It looked for all the world like a man in armor, a super technological knight 60 feet tall. The electric gatling gun that had been pad mounted under the Veritech's belly was now aligned along its right arm, the giant right hand gripping it like an outlandish rifle. The cockpit section was unrecognizable, now incorporated in the turret like helmet, the battleoid's head. Its visor swung this way and that taking in the situation, seeing the explosions of the dogfight continuing high above. The battleoid knew the enemy was there. It was ready to do what it had been designed to do. It awaited orders. Rick shook his head groggily. What do you know? I'm alive! Then he saw that something was wrong with his perspective, that it was high above the street, that there were things about Robotech too astounding to believe. He saw the distant air engagement too. Somehow, Rick knew deep down that life was never going to be the way it had been 15 minutes ago. Things had changed forever. Thank 
Thank you for listening to Robotech The McKinney Project. Robotech The McKinney Project is produced by McJ, hosted by JT. Robotech is a trademark of Harmony Gold USA. Sorry, can't do nothing about that, guys and girls. See you next show. Bye-bye!